Hi there. Welcome to the Pocket Contemplative, which until recently was called the Journey On Podcast. I'm Dave Smelser. So a recent conversation about navigating profound religious and cultural divisions got me into a series of conversations about all sorts of interesting stuff about how contemplatives and others pull it off. Were there any practical suggestions that might help us? Well, recognizing that, of course, there's not an answer per se, but maybe there are some things we could keep in mind, which would help in some conversations and keep us a little more sane and grounded in other conversations, which feel more hopeless. So in this podcast, I will talk about things like a stage theory of spiritual and emotional development that I've often processed over the years, but which has some fresh life in these conversations. We'll talk about a really important aspect of the stage theory the difference between hard and soft stages and how that distinction will give you marching orders. We'll talk about how this idea actually has really deep roots as we look at how it plays out in a recent Franciscan and in historic Zen teaching. We'll explore how we might respond differently based on our sense of calling to someone who sees the world profoundly differently than we do. And we'll look at a perspective on how people are complex in some really useful ways for people we do feel called to. We will kick around a contemplative take on what to do if you find yourself not just in a difficult conversation with someone who sees the world differently than you do, but what to do if you find yourself in an entire culture that seems hostile. And we'll close with an insight from a friend from a Journey On online group who notes that classic contemplative practice offers us an especially powerful gift in these divisions. So it's interesting. We did an earlier podcast, it was actually number 13, called Let's Heal Divisions, in which we looked at the thinking of a quirky philosopher named Ken Wilber about his idea of mindsets that keep us divided and how, as we grow in these mindsets, we need to transcend and include those in stages we've passed through. So that was very related to what we'll be talking about here. And in my circles, transcend and include has become our very clear marching orders. But the big question remains, yes, but how? Since recording that podcast, it seemed to me that Wilbur himself, while entirely believing in transcending and including, doesn't actually know how to pull it off. So maybe we can't transcend and include, despite our best hopes. But maybe in an imperfect world, we'll look at some things here that would be useful to keep in mind nonetheless. Before we get started, I will mention that if you like the sort of spirituality we talk about here, you might really enjoy trying out a weekly online group I help host around these things with folks from around the country and beyond. Now, I mention this each week, but I've realized that some of our faithful listeners nonetheless don't connect this as something that it could apply to them or to you. It still seems like, though I talk with people who've listened to every single podcast, this part still seems like that part that mentions these groups that some very distant other group of folks enjoy. But seriously, if you like these podcasts, these groups are really targeted directly at you. So why not poke your head in at least once to see if you actually might enjoy the kind of support and friendship and connection that can make these insights actually become an ingrained part of your day-to-day life. So that said, we have four groups. On Sundays at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, they're all the same. On Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and on Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Seriously, you, yes you, should check out one soon. Also, if you're the sort of person who would enjoy a Sunday service experience in the Spirit, perhaps enjoying a look at the Bible, we've just started them on the third Sundays of each month at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. The third Sundays of each month at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So for login information on any of this, Email connect at journey-on.net. Connect at journey-on.net. All right, then. Kick us off, Ryan Hood 4. Practical thoughts on navigating divisions. I was in a conversation a few weeks back in one of the breakout groups in our weekly Journey On groups. And the conversation centered on a podcast that one of the group members had listened to that week 
in which a progressive pastor that this um, breakout group member knew had gone on the podcast of a conservative pastor. And he described how the podcast was, was interesting, and both the progressive pastor and the conservative pastor did well on the podcast. They listened to each other, they drew each other out, they were respectful. But he remarked about how the comment section was not so respectful. It was kind of would classically be something you would describe as full of online trolls. And they were all from the conservative point of view because it was the conservative podcast host's uh, podcast. And so from the conservative point of view, the comments were mean and damning people to hell and saying snide and uh, evil and mean comments to anybody who thought differently than they did. And the, uh, the guy in our group said, I don't know what to do with that. How do I navigate divisions like this? I used to be in the one category. Now I'm sort of in the other category and maybe I'm even beyond the other category, but I still want to see people get along. And I'm in relationship with people who are in a different space than I am. And he also had very kind-hearted thoughts about, I don't just want to write off even the online trolls. You know, is there a dialogue that we can start with them? How do we think about these questions? Well, happily, that next week, my wife Grace and I took our first real road trip, certainly in, boy, a long time. And so knowing we would have lots of time in a car, Grace and I took some time to brainstorm our thoughts about the deep questions that this gentleman had raised in my breakout group. And we're going to talk here about some of the things we came up with. Some of these categories are long held for us. So if you followed our thinking at all over the years, they're going to be familiar to you as a starting point, but maybe not in their implications. The baseline idea that Grace and I worked with, which then had a bunch of really, again, useful and practical offshoots, came from a theory of emotional and spiritual development that's been meaningful to us over the years to the point that I've included sections on it in both of my books, Not the Religious Type and Blue Ocean Faith. Well, I first learned about this theory from a best-selling psychologist. I've since learned, as I'll talk about in a moment, that a very similar take on life is deeply embedded in many traditions. I will touch on how it comes up for a Franciscan monk and in the Zen tradition. So a whole lot of people have found this useful for the sorts of conversations we're talking about here. I'll give you a very brief take on it, and I'll mention, uh, as I do, that we include a five-minute video about this theory along with nine other important starting points in contemplative spirituality, in a series of videos on the journey-on.net site called 5-Minute Spirituality. So again, we have 10 videos, all about five minutes, about what we think are kind of key uh, building blocks of the sort of spirituality we talk about here. You'll find them on the site, journey-on.net, under the Resources tab. So if you want to hear more about this or hear this thing in a video form, you can uh, go to that tab and see it, along with nine other interesting things. Well, this theory was pioneered by a once-famous psychologist named M. Scott Peck. He wrote what I'm told is the best-selling book of the 1980s called The Road Less Traveled. And I think his stage theory has things to teach us about how religion connects with the spirituality we talk about here and how religious and cultural divisions are so prevalent and why that happens and how to think about that. So Peck describes four stages of human spiritual and emotional development that he says will go together right up until the fourth stage begins in our 20s, at which point all the rest is exploration of that final stage. But he says trauma gets in the way and keeps most of us from making smooth progress. Also, these stages might help explain why we so often, again, talk past each other about spiritual or cultural issues. So let me briefly run through them for you. Let's call stage one chaotic. This corresponds to the toddler years. Toddlers are cute and loving, but in the broader sense, they can't care about you. As they are tantruming over a toy they've been denied, toddlers rarely stop themselves to say, but you know, I haven't asked once about your day. Peck observes that people who get stuck in the chaotic stage are often best served by two institutions, jail and positions of power. Now, again, not that they're served by positions of power, but they often find their way into positions of power. In jail, 
right? We do know where we end. It's where the bars are. But high-functioning stage one people can often find themselves in positions of power where they fool people. They're not all about themselves. We might call stage two rules-based. This would correspond to being age six or seven. Now we care what mommy and daddy think, what they want, what the rules are. Peck argues that two institutions might best serve stage two. The military may be for obvious reasons. It famously helps people coming from chaotic stage one backgrounds become solid citizens. But he also says that many churches and other houses of worship worldwide fit in here. They tell people the rules, what's right, what's wrong, who the good people are and the bad people are. Now, Peck does not judge this. The heart and soul of most countries is stage two. These are the good people that get most things done, that raise great families. It's largely a conservative space. It brings order out of the chaos of stage one. Let's call stage three skeptical. This corresponds to the teen years. At this stage, the healthy teen begins to question the rules that she's been taught in stage two. So she might ask a stage two parent, so why am I not supposed to have sex with someone before I get married? And if the answer that she gets back is, what, are you some sort of immoral person? Then she might be confirmed in stage three. There was nothing behind all those stage two rules. It was all a power play. The institution that best supports stage three is said to be the university. Periodically, conservative parents complain that universities are only liberal, but maybe that's true by definition. Universities are filled with 18 to 21-year-olds, the sweet spot of stage three. This is usually a progressive space. But what stage three people usually don't realize is that there is a stage four, that there actually are answers to the questions they've been asking. You might call this the mystical stage or the journeying space, because now we're starting a profound, important, uncharted journey with Jesus. Here, we suddenly realize that many things we were taught in stage two are in fact true, but in a richer and more mysterious way than we imagined. So take a spiritual truism from the biblical tradition, believe in Jesus and be saved. Stage two might read this as, okay, as of today at 3 p.m., I did believe in Jesus, so I know I'm going to heaven, whatever happens. Stage four, on the other hand, might well say, wow, that seems profound. I think I do believe, but what does believe mean? Am I believing now? How do I keep doing it? And saved, saved right now or just saved after I die? Wow, how does that work? So you might have picked up that stage four is said to be about questions, while stage two is said to be about answers. Now, a key insight here is that you don't graduate from one stage to the next. You incorporate each stage as you move on, which may tie back into Ken Wilber's idea of transcending and including. So in stage four, you're very aware of your conservative stage two side that believes in rules and good people and bad people, and of your progressive crusading stage three side. And you're comfortable having what Jung would call a shadow side that here you might call a stage one side. And so if following spirituality to where it leads you appeals to you, I wonder if the good news is that you don't need to reject others for not being where you are. Maybe you can bless all people and know that all people have their own things in their own way to teach you. Uh, what's helped me in the stages is understanding that I might need to take a kind of journey that maybe not all of my acquaintances need to take. And it's helped me realize that with contemplative spirituality as a key tool, perhaps I have a lifetime of learning and growth ahead of me, which turns out to be motivating and encouraging to someone like me. So, okay, there's this stage theory. Maybe you can already see how it might apply to this observation about this podcast that uh, my friend in the online group uh, talked about. But let me first um, give you a brief digression on this idea of stages. So this view of the world comes up in many settings. The Franciscan friar, Richard Rohr, wrote a recent book in which he explored what he called the wisdom pattern, which he says is order, disorder, and reorder. You might pick up how this could be stage two, order, bringing order out of the chaos of stage one. 
Disorder, rebelling, being skeptical about the order in place, and reorder, coming to some new understanding, which then becomes stage four. Uh, Zen spirituality talks about the fundamental pattern as conforming, rebelling, and creating, and it applies it to art. I just heard a podcast about this recently. Really interesting. And so it talks about how in art, in any art, the first thing you need to learn to do is to conform to uh, whatever the pattern of that art is. You have to learn how to paint. You have to learn how to, what's the rules of painting? What's the rules of narrative fiction? What's the rules of poetry? What's the rules of gardening? What's the rules of landscape architecture? What's the rules? Conforming. Stage two, very important thing. Then it talks about how in all art, certainly in Zen art, most people stop there. Just learning how to do the thing. Conforming becomes a, a lifetime pursuit. So we become conformist, but we've learned something. We've brought order out of chaos. Very important. But in the Zen view, there's an adolescent phase. Peck also calls stage three adolescent. And the adolescent phase is rebelling. Now you've got to kind of individuate. You get a point where you say, all right, I've learned how to conform, but now this is who I am. And I'm going to rebel against the thing. That's the stage three we're talking about here. But what the Zen people say is that has to be a short period. Because if you rebel for too long, if you stay in stage three for too long, you're actually enslaved to conforming, to stage two. You're enslaved to the thing you're rebelling against. You're tethered to it. You're not free to actually create anything. But that's why they have that the final stage is creating, which would here would be stage four. Suddenly you walk into the spirituality you've gained from all that mastery of stage two and that rebelling of stage three. Now you've walked into something that's much bigger and vaster, and, and it's the thing you've been wanting all along, that you had to learn the rules and then break the rules to be able to get to. Stage four. All right, anyway, now let's apply this to this podcast that my friend and my Journey On group told us about. So on that front, I find myself thinking about an important nuance to the stages, which you might call hard and soft stages. So let's look at this podcast. You could argue, so the idea of hard and soft stages particularly applies to stage two and stage three, the conservative and progressive stage, the conforming and rebelling stage, the order and disorder stage, whatever it is. Conservative, let's call it conservative progressive. Hard stage two is into the stage. It's basically saying, I am a conservative. I am a rules keeper. And I know who the good people are and who the bad people are. And the commitment is to the stage itself. But soft stage two is just finds themselves in that stage. It's just, it's an accident of history. So Grace herself said, oh, gee, Dave, when I first met you, I think I was soft stage two. The context for faith I'd been in, and Grace is a very sincere believer, were stage two contexts. I never knew there were different options, but I wasn't hard stage two. I wasn't committed to it. I just wanted to grow in faith and grow in God and grow in Jesus. And if I could grow, I didn't really care about the stage. And so I was soft stage two. And hard versus soft stage three. Soft stage three would be, well, I just find myself in a progressive setting. It makes sense to me. It's what I've learned, but I'm not, you know, I'm open. What, what does growth look like? Hard stage three is, doggone it, I am a progressive. I am a skeptic. I am a rebel. I am whatever. And anyone who's not those things is terrible. So hard stage three is the stage three who is tethered to the previous stage that Zen talks about. Their life is in reaction to the previous stage. They hate that previous stage. They need to overcome that previous stage. So let's think about that here in this podcast it seems like, as my friend describes it, the podcast hosts were largely soft stages. The conservative host was gracious, was open, wanted to hear from the progressive um, guest, and, you know, was soft stage too, probably. The progressive guest seems like, as described, to be soft stage three. They were progressive. They needed to move out of stage two. It no longer made sense to them. Um, you know, but they're not jerks about it. They're not committed to it. They want to talk to the friend who would be in the conservative camp, and they want to hear from them. Soft stages. But the online commenters would have been hard stage two, the trolls. 
you're bad. If you don't agree with what we believe, you're going straight to hell. And, you know, fooey on you. I hate you. That's a hard stage. That is a really useful distinction in my experience. So as we find people with whom we just come at the world from a different place, are they soft or hard stages? That might tell us what to do next, because if they're soft stages, as in the podcast, maybe there's a conversation to be had, the be a worthy conversation to have. But if you discover they are hard stage, and maybe you're hard stage, but hopefully you're not. Hopefully you've been continued to progress, and it's very hard to be hard stage four. At that point, in the creating stage, as the Zen folks would say, or the reorder stage, as Richard Rohr would say, or the journeying mystical stage that we might talk about. In that stage, you're, you just realize that, that reality is so much bigger than you are and that you haven't left behind previous stages. You have transcended and included. It's not that you're not conservative. You are conservative. A lot of that stuff has been very meaningful and important to you. Just learning the rules of how to life can work, crucial. And it's not that you're not stage three and progressive. You are understanding there's more people on earth than just you and people like you and that they matter, hearing other voices, et cetera, learning how that all works, very important to you. You have not left that behind. But in stage four, you recognize, wow, reality is huge. This is going to take a while and uh, you need all the help you can get. So you're not a hard stage person. But perhaps you're talking to someone who is in a hard stage and that's why you have the conflict. So understanding that's the case, it raises a, a second question. What's your level of calling to a given relationship? Which uh, answers the question, how far do you hang in with people? So in the podcast instance, you could argue that my friend from the online group might not be called to the online trolls. You know, th that, that may just be asking for grief to try to like put a hand out to them to like start a dialogue. Maybe it would work. And I'm not, you know, we need to do what we're called to do. Maybe we're called to it. But most likely for most of us not. And so those would be people, people in hard stages that we are not called to. We probably just want to distance ourselves from and leave them to their own life. But there are going to be people we are called to. Most people I know, for instance, have relatives who are on the other side of whatever the cultural divide is. We probably aren't called to just dismiss them. And yet some of those relatives might be hardened in their stage. So what do you do? Or good friends or people we meet who we feel like we have some calling to. How do you progress with those people? Well, I wonder if it's helpful to realize in, in, in relationships across a political or cultural divide that we are feeling called to is that the people we're talking to and we ourselves are complex. So some years back, friends and I had another theory of spirituality that looked at people as having like arrows that pointed like their heart a given direction and wondered if that was helpful to think about in some conversations. And we had big highfalutin phrases called centered and bounded sets and things like that. But the point is, Maybe there's something good in the world, and we're either pointed towards it or we're pointed away from it, and that could be a meaningful thing to figure out. But in that conversation, another friend said, you know, I love that arrows thing. It's been very helpful in ways that we can't talk about here, but I don't believe in the arrow. What I believe in is like a hundred arrows. We're all complex people. And there is an arrow that might be the arrow pointed towards the good thing. There's plenty of other arrows that are pointed wherever they are, and those are where it gets interesting. So let's say I'm trying to convince someone that pointing their arrow towards Jesus, let's say, is a really important thing to do, and they're not into it, and I'm into it, and I have no impact at all. I'm helping them point their arrow towards Jesus. But what they're into is uh, stewarding the environment. And they come after me and they say, you know, Dave, you do such a bad job of stewarding the environment. You don't compost. You don't recycle. You just go through water like crazy, and we're in drought times. You know, what are you thinking? Change your ways. And let's say I feel all harumphy about that, and afterwards I go pray and I say, well, Jesus, 
my friend says I'm just a bad environmentalist and, you know, fooey on him. And what if my senses as I pray is that God, Jesus, says to me, oh, Dave, your friend's totally right. You know, change your ways. Well, at that point, who helped whose arrow turned, as it were, not just towards some good thing, but maybe even towards Jesus? Jesus himself said, you should be doing this. So I thought I was trying to convert my friend, and my friend converted me towards the same good thing. That was um, the idea of the hundred arrows, is that we're complex. There's more going on than just a commitment to something or other. Well, as Grace and I were talking about this idea of how do we navigate profound divisions, Grace right away said, well, it's the hundred arrows, right? If you are in a conversation with someone and they are hardened against your position, but you are called to them, they're not just that, right? There's more going on in their lives than just their hardenedness against your position on something. They have a whole life. They have a lot going on. And working the other arrows might be the way to go. Because maybe there's a whole other conversation we can be in, which isn't directly about the conflict. But we care about them in other ways, and so we're going to draw them out on, on other things. And through that, we build trust. And maybe through that, the opportunity comes up where, you know, the hardened arrow thing is in play later on. But we don't, we don't major on that with people with whom we are called. We start elsewhere. I thought that was fascinating. 100 arrows. I submit it to you. Now, let's say that our situation is that we need to interact not just with individuals that are uncongenial to us, that are on another opposite side of a divide from us on these political or cultural issues. But what if we actually find ourselves in or want to put ourselves into a whole culture that is hostile to us on these things? So you're a conservative and you move to a progressive state or a progressive and you move to a conservative state. And everyone around you now, it seems like, boy, they're hardened against things that you hold dear. What's the hope of that? How should we think about that? And for that, I have a contemplative category that comes to mind, which I will at least throw your way, which is that maybe in those circumstances, we need to own in those contexts that we're going to suffer. Just own it. Now, that's the whole contemplative insight, right, is that we don't build up a huge apparatus to make sure we never have to suffer. Instead, we just stay present to the moment we are in. And if suffering comes, we notice it. We say, oh, that looks like suffering. And then we suffer it. But then like a cloud that's drifting across a clear blue sky, it tends to waft off at some point. And so by not protecting ourselves against the possibility of suffering, we do suffer. But we don't keep suffering by building up huge walls against other people or walls against ourselves. We don't have to feel anymore because we don't want to suffer. We just suffer. When it's time to suffer, we suffer, and then we're done. I wonder if there's something to that if we are in whole regions which are going to be hostile to us. We can try to build up, bolster ourselves while they're all such, you know, they're bad people or they're wrong or they're foolish or they're idiotic or whatever their, their bad characteristic is, they have it and we don't. And we can rehearse all the time why we're right and they're wrong and they're ridiculous and they're bad in this way, et cetera. But all that rehearsing is its own form of suffering, right? We have to live in this constant froth and this constant fulmination. I wonder if we're in settings like that, if being a contemplative helps uh, for our mental health, for our spirituality, for our uh, spiritual growth, for our emotional health, all that sort of stuff. I wonder if it helps just to get still. And as we notice all the ways we're trying to protect ourselves from suffering by judging all the people around us constantly or by whatever else, we just notice it. We get behind that and we say, oh yeah, I see myself judging that person or I see myself judging this culture. And now I'm going to take a breath and just notice it. And then hopefully that will be like a cloud that passes and I'm going to let it pass. I'm not going to ride that cloud. I'm going to let it go. And then I'm just going to live. And I'm going to see people, I'm going to interact with them. And then if, if some unexpected barb comes my way that I've no longer bolstered myself against, 
I'm going to feel the barb. It's going to hit home. I'm going to be like, ow, that just hurt. And then I'm going to notice that it hurt. Wow, I see you, that barb that just hurt. I notice it. And it too, like a cloud, can then just waft away. I think if we don't own that in cultures that are not friendly to us, we are going to suffer, our lives are not going to go well. Because we're going to have to then, you know, again, build huge walls around us to make sure we never feel suffering, which means our whole life then becomes, the organizing principle becomes our opposition to the culture. We become the adolescent stage three, who's enslaved to the stage two thing we're rebelling against. And our whole life is, we are then in relationship to it always, rather than just living our lives, which is the stage four idea. We are just moving on. And uh, it doesn't mean we're not progressive and conservative, but it means we have other things going on than that. But so long as we are not owning that suffering is going to come our way, and we need to just own it and then suffer it and then let it pass, um, I think we're going to find ourselves in a place we're not going to like. That is the contemplative insight. Speaking of contemplative insights, let me close with uh, just one that came up from within our groups as I was talking about this. And uh, a woman in one of our groups who was about to return to a culture that had been very hostile to her not long before, but there was just the first time back or first time back at this level, and there were reasons to go. She said, you know, I love all that stuff Davey just said, the hard and soft stages, thinking about stage theory, owning suffering, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I love that stuff. I'm going to use it all. But I'll tell you, there's another contemplative insight from all the things we've talked about here on Journey On that I think might even be more powerful for me. So I was, of course, all ears. And she said, I think as I go into this setting, I'm going to have the commitment as a contemplative to let go of my previous story as I relate to someone. They might have been hurtful to me. They might have been so mean to me in this kind of cultural divide ways. But I'm just going to notice that I feel like they've been mean to me. I'm going to let that story go. And I'm going to be present to this story, to what happens now. And that means I might be opening myself up for more suffering, right? Because what if they're just mean to me or whatever else? But I'm just going to run that risk. I'm going to let old stories go and be present to the current story. That struck me as deep wisdom about what it means to practically navigate cultural and political divides. I thought that was good stuff. Well, there you go. That, that is the, the sum total of my practical thoughts on the matter at the moment. I hope you feel at least some things that you can give a shot to or can keep in mind in these profound divisions that we all find ourselves in. So thank you for joining me for this week's The Pocket Contemplative. Then I mentioned that you should actually check out one of the weekly online groups with people from all over America and several countries beyond. And you should see if one of those groups might actually offer you friends and support about seeing these insights take hold in your life. Okay, make that happen this week. That's your marching orders, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>